The Art of Organizing and Resistance. For that, we turn to L.A. Kaufman. She's been a grassroots organizer and movement journalist for more than 35 years. She was a coordinator for some of the largest demonstrations in American history, the Iraq anti-war protests of 2003 and 2004. She writes for The Guardian, N Plus One, and other publications. Now she's got a new book out. It's called How to Read a Protest. L.A. Kaufman, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. Well, you say protests work, just not the way we think. We want to talk about a couple of key protests, compare and contrast them. The most celebrated mass protest in American history, at least before Trump, was probably the 1963 March on Washington. That's the one, of course, that culminated with Martin Luther King giving his I Have a Dream speech. The year after that, Congress passed the first real civil rights law in 100 years. And the year after that, the first real voting rights law in 100 years. In some ways, it's the definitive protest march. And at that point, it was the biggest mass march on Washington in history. So let's talk about the, ma- the March on Washington of 1963. How was it organized? How were its goals uh, defined? Well, the march certainly had as its goal passing that legislation as well as broader action on a range of, of, of civil and economic issues. But uh, what's, what's striking to me about the 63 march is although it did play a role in the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act and, and the 65 Voting Rights Act, people tend to look back on it and see a closer association than there actually was. And then to use that myth about the power of the 63 March to disparage subsequent movements. Protests rarely, especially big protests, rarely work as short-term pressure tactics. They help build movements in all kinds of other ways. You say the mass protest march in America was a black invention conceived by black leaders shaped by black organizing traditions, and built mostly through black organizations and networks. That's a very striking claim that I hadn't thought about before, but I'm pretty sure you're right about that. You know, when I I started working on this book, I had the vague sense that there had been mass marches in America before 63, and, and certainly there was protest before then. But the mass march, and particularly the March on Washington, as we know it, really never happened before that 1963 March on Washington. And that's become a powerful and influential template for a whole range of movements. One of your principles in how to read a protest is to pay attention to the signs. The signs at the March on Washington were different from the signs we've, we see more recently. Yeah, when I discovered this detail, that was what sent me into the archives, um, because having organized huge mobilizations myself, um, I was uh, flabbergasted when I discovered that at the 1963 March on Washington, all of the signs were controlled by the March leadership. You weren't allowed to bring your own sign or have your own slogan. They not only chose the slogans and printed out uh, all the posters and handed them out to the crowd, but they had a force of some 2,000 volunteer marshals who, if you happened to bring your own sign, would surround you and take it away from you. Amazing. And that happened, Yeah, right? it's amazing. And it was, what, of course, the questions that, that that raised in my mind, as someone who organized huge protests, first of all, I wondered how on earth they managed to pull that off, because it's not so easy to control a crowd of a huh. quarter million or more so tightly. Yeah. But then the second question was, why? Why did they want to? 
there was a lot of talk beforehand. I think part of the part of the why was that there was a lot of talk beforehand about the many ways the march could go wrong and that the march would be, quote, marred by violence. Was that a legitimate concern or was that just kind of racist disinformation? It was mostly racist disinformation. I mean, nearly all the violence associated with the civil rights movement by that point was violence directed toward it. And the idea that bringing large numbers of African Americans together was going to lead necessarily to to violence and mayhem was a profoundly racist assumption. But the, the organizers were also very concerned with what's sometimes called the politics of respectability and was really wanting to project a very controlled, very orderly image for the march and not allow there to be any messages there that were more radical than the demands that they wanted to foreground. It's interesting that the people who did show up at the march with their own handmade signs and had them taken away were mostly really grassroots activists from the South, were civil rights activists who'd been doing frontline work in places like Mississippi and brought their own heartfelt handmade signs to convey what they had been through and what they were looking to achieve. And those, I managed to track down one sign, uh, one unauthorized sign. I have a photograph in the book. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, on the whole, they were just taken away. And what did that sign say? It's remembering Megger Everett, who had been assassinated um, just a short while before. Well, after the 1963 March on Washington, probably the most famous march in our history, is the Women's March the day after Trump was inaugurated. That was not just a march on Washington, but it had hundreds, I'm sure everybody remembers this, hundreds of sister marches all over the place, huge marches in big cities and little marches in tiny towns everywhere. Let's compare and contrast these two just to start with the most striking difference between the Women's March and the 63 March on Washington is that the Women's March was not making demands on Congress or making demands of the president, they weren't proposing legislation, they weren't advocating for policies. That makes it a really different kind of march, doesn't it? It does, and um, in some ways that um, puts it in the tradition that Occupy Wall Street was in. Occupy Wall Street was famous for not having specific demands. Um, As you noted, there wasn't just a march on Washington following in the footsteps of that 63 march, but on this occasion there were more than 650 sister marches around the country, which shattered previous records for coordinated protest in the U.S. The idea of having, you know, simultaneous protests around the country is nothing new, but it rarely ever happened in more than, say, 200 locations at a time. And the women's marches just blew that record out of the water and set a precedent for the resistance to Trump, which has proven to be remarkably widespread geographically. It's been, you know, robust numerically, but it's also been in every corner of the country. And the women's marches of January 2017 are regarded pretty much by all of us as a tremendous success. On the other hand, the biggest anti-war protests in the history of the world were you know them well, the eve of the Iraq war in 2003, where millions and millions of people demonstrated all over the world. That didn't work. That 
was not a success at stopping Bush from launching the war. We need to talk about that one, too. It certainly felt afterwards like this had been a hopeless cause since the beginning. So I was the mobilizing coordinator for those marches. And as an organizing project, they were an extraordinary thing to be at the center of. It was, uh, you know, a massive mobilization that was put together in record time, came together in something like six weeks. As you mentioned, February 15th, 2003 still stands as the largest single coordinated day of protest in world history. And yet it didn't stop the war. Um, It was certainly an object lesson in the idea that there's not necessarily a correlation between size and impact when it comes to protests. Bigger protests do not always have greater impact than smaller protests. It's a much more complicated algorithm. Um, But there also are times when we just simply, no matter how many people march in the streets, we simply don't have the power to achieve what we want. You know, I was haunted for years by the experience of of having been in the midst of that mobilization where so many people did such extraordinary work, where, you know, the protest came off so splendidly and powerfully as protest, and yet the war proceeded, George Bush was reelected, you know, we had a march outside the 2004 Republican Convention that still stands as one of maybe the five biggest marches in U.S. history, uh, but it didn't stop George Bush from being reelected. The, you know, the questions that those experiences raised for me have been kind of worrying away at me for years. And it was the experience of stepping into the crowds in 2017 at the women's marches and seeing that something very different was happening that led me to write this book. I think it matters to protest even when you know you're going to lose. Sometimes you have to lose as a stepping stone to winning. Sometimes you just need to be out there saying, we don't agree with what you're doing and we think that it's wrong. But, of course, the sense of despair that many people had when the war proceeded, even after we had marched in such huge numbers, really meant that the anti-war movement never never regained the strength that it had going out of the gate in 2003. Well, let's talk about the 2018 midterms. Of course, a big, big success for Democrats and winning back control of the House. What's your analysis of the 2018 midterms and the political mobilization we've just seen? Well, I see very strong through lines from those 2017 women's marches to the 2018 midterms. The scale of the volunteer grassroots mobilizing the the get-out-the-vote work was absolutely staggering. For sure, it exceeded any previous midterm cycle, election cycle in American history. And there's some indications that it may well have exceeded the levels of volunteer engagement that we've seen in the most active of the presidential election cycles. And so much of that was women, again, not waiting for permission, not necessarily going through established groups, perhaps going through some of the thousands of local resistance groups that were founded after those women's marches, uh, most of which have affiliated with Indivisible, or through other advocacy groups, stepping up and doing the unglamorous, crucial get-out-the-vote work of phone banking and text banking and door-knocking that produced the record 
turnout that we saw and that in turn produced the Democrat victories all around the country. You conclude your book, How to Read a Protest, that no matter how massive protests are, they don't signal a threat to the existing order. And the big question is not how many people attended. So if that's not the big question, what is the crucial question for big demonstrations? Well, I do want to say that that it, we could that there are there is a there is a scale at which protests would signal threat um, to an administration, but they would have to be about double the biggest protests we've ever seen in American history. Um, the The thing about the massive protests that we have in America is they're all one day affairs, and leaders know that however many people march, they're going to go back home. And in order to signal a threat, people would have to do something different. They would need to stick around for an ongoing occupation or engage in civil disobedience or do some other kind of work that carries forward and extends the power of that marching into other arenas. We saw that people did that with the electoral work after the women's marches. But the marching alone, what it does is something different. What it does is it gives people the sense of their collective power, that feeling of belonging to something bigger than themselves. It's an important part of movement building, but it's not so much the tactic that's going to help us win. The big question about protests is not how many people attended, it's what did they do afterward. L.A. Kaufman, her new book is How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. L.A., thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 